1: Good morning and welcome to our wild world. Over previous episodes, we've discussed the economic impacts of persistent growth models, effects on conservation, that we have long overshot sustainability due to our ever-increasing demands upon our planet's resources. Today, with my guest Bill Clark, we're discussing a whole other unsustainable economic driver, the illegal trade and trafficking of live wildlife, and specifically, what happens to these live animals confiscated outside their country of origin. Bill Clark is a wildlife program specialist with Animal Welfare Institute. Recently retired from Interpol, Bill worked in wildlife law enforcement for 23 years. He holds a Ph.D. in ethology, which is the study of wild animals' behavior in relation to its habitat. And at present, he is co-chair with a Swiss colleague of the CITES Working Group on Disposal of conflict confiscated specimens. Today, we're going to learn from the CITES regulations to international ports and customs services to law enforcement, what happens to these seized animals, why and where do they go, and what laws are in place nationally and internationally to deal with this ever-increasing problem and its impacts on the wild and the animals. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, you're quite versed on this subject, so uh, why don't we begin with you telling us just a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in your passion and became a, a member of CITES and uh, law enforcement and um, what you're doing.
2: Sure. Uh, I was born in probably the least likely place in the world to be get a good start with wildlife, and that was... The South Bronx in New York, um, only wildlife there were some refugee pigeons uh, and occasional sparrows. Um, but my, my parents divorced and custody had me bouncing between the Bronx and Newtown, Connecticut. Um, and I grew up mostly in Newtown. Uh, and in that town back in the 1950s, um, there was a law that, uh, hunting laws, um, that said uh, in the springtime, uh, the only animals that could be hunted were uh, classified as vermin. And I was just an impressionable teenager at the time. Uh, and I had, there was a judge, a municipal judge in town. He went out hunting in the springtime and he shot some vermin, it turned out to be a fox. And it was a mother foxes. And he just orphaned three three young kids and he couldn't kill them, so he scooped them up and gave them to a high school teacher. The teacher didn't really know what to do with them after a few days, so he gave one of them to me. So I raised a fox when I was maybe 15 years old. Um, There were no laws back in the 50s saying uh, uh, private people could or couldn't do that sort of thing, and they were vermin anyway. Uh, So I I passed the next um, three years uh, in the company of a fox, Uh, A red fox. Uh, I called her Khrushchev because she was red. And Khrushchev was the biggest red I knew of back then. Uh, But I took her out and we became very good friends. And I I really mean that, that we came to understand each other. We'd go off together. Um, She was hand-wrapped from very small. I could hold her in one hand very easily. And we're constant companions. So we'd, we'd go off in the woods no leash or anything like that necessary, we just run together and she always stayed around the house And well, she stayed around because she'd have supper in the evening, so if she ran off for a few hours, she'd be back Uh, but she sensitized me to wildlife and I learned I learned an enormous amount about wild animals Um, just from, from being with a fox that could not benefit from being reared by her own mother so that was my my first it, it gave me a certain sensitivity um of another life that that had a mind of its own um, not you know, we had dogs and cats all the time, but they were pretty much attuned to human ways, but the fox wasn't the fox had her own ways uh, and that sensitized me i subsequently after when I turned eighteen, I went into the Marine Corps and got a nice free ticket going to Southeast Asia for a year and a half, came back from there thinking people should solve their problems uh, in a uh, in a more benevolent manner than shooting each other. Um, so I thought I'd become a lawyer and, and solve things amicably. But I, after law school, I, I didn't like being a lawyer. I, I didn't want to get into that profession. I shifted, started studying biology. And that's, that was my my true love. I, I wanted to learn more and more. I found myself enthusiastic. Even in law school, I went in San Francisco. I volunteered on the weekends to help rescue seabirds that were uh, caught in the in the oil um, from in the South Bay, South San Francisco Bay Area, the refineries. We went out in boats and that. So I sort of grew from there. Um, fast forward a decade or so, uh, 1980, A fellow named Mavram Yofi, who is the director general of the Reserves Authority in Israel, who I've been helping at the time. Uh, uh, Yofi declared something called the second law of return for Israel, the first law of return. Any Jew who wants to can go to Israel and accept citizenship. That's the law of return. Yofi said his second law of return is I am going to bring back every wild animal that still exists if it had been in this country previously and had been locally extirpated. And there are many oryx antelopes, wild asses, many of them are um, identified in scripture, dozens of species. And he asked me to uh, lend a hand, especially since I was in the U.S. and we started getting oryxes from zoos out in California and Arizona and brought them back to Israel. Then eventually in 1980, he asked me to uh, manage the reserve where it was being done. So I had a real job with um, really every day from sunrise to sunset among many animals and being responsible for their care and protection, that sort of thing. So they got me on it. And then CITES came along because I'm from the States, so I, I can speak English rather well, which is better than most people in Israel who were born with Hebrew and um, don't have English as an a native language, and so they asked me to be on a CITES delegation because they needed someone who could speak English and, and read all of these hundreds of pages of documents in English. Um, just imagine yourself trying to read hundreds of pages in Hebrew and say, oh, it's a task. So that's how I got into CITES. Wow, that, that's
1: an amazing story. Yeah. So, um, and now you're, you're still... With CITES on this uh, co-chairing yeah. this specific as the committee of what to do with seas- the disposal of confiscated specimens, that's a rather yeah. dry terminology. So uh, why don't we begin by outlining, you know, what what the problems are in seized wildlife, and why talking about the disposal of confiscated CITES listed specimens is important for the public to understand.
2: Well, you characterized it as being a dry term, disposal of confiscated specimens. And of course it's a dry term and it's intentionally uh, dry because nobody wants someone who's got empathy for animals to get involved in this sort of thing. We just muddle things up too much for them. Um, Disposal is what you do with the garbage or nuclear waste or something you really don't want you dispose of it uh... dispose of an animal uh... of course we're not disposing animals in this we're disposal of confiscated specimens they won't let the animal have their own names their specimens um... so when someone in a government agency is responsible for disposal of specimens it's there's there's almost like a sanitary barrier um... People don't have an ethos of the institution that, hey, I'm dealing with a sentient creature here. And I'm not disposing of it. I'm trying to find proper care for it. Um, So we need to change this terminology. That's one of the first priorities. But there are many problems. Uh, And CITES sent out a questionnaire to all of its member countries. 182 countries, 183, pardon, received this questionnaire. Uh, about what what should be done with confiscated animals or what should we do about the disposal of confiscated specimens, to be more correct. Uh, Only 58 responded. That's that's just about one-third of the countries. Um, Two-thirds of the countries didn't even bother to respond to the questionnaire circulated by the Secretariat. That, That identifies part of the problem. Then when I looked at, well, who did respond, We find out the good responding countries, the ones who take care of the animals they confiscate rather well on a comparative basis. The Americans and the Europeans and other developed countries and a a few of the developing countries. But usually these are countries that had, had good policies in place and are quite responsible when they seize an animal and they put it into a proper facility. Um, Two-thirds of the countries that didn't respond don't have very good policies. And that seems to be where the big problem is. We don't have information of where the most profound concern should lie because the countries where these events happen are not responsive right now. They need to be.
1: And usually they're um, on the, the poorer side. So yeah. they already have difficulty with, let's say, a national budget and, and government funds to care for these aspects of seizure.
2: Absolutely. I think a lot of countries didn't respond because they're embarrassed. Now, how can I fill in this response here and say, well, we really don't do anything. We, we can't. We don't have the resources. We don't this, that, and something else. Um, I anticipate there's at least 100,000 live animals that are seized every year. And that's a very conservative figure from facts that are reported, um, unreported. I'm, I'm guessing the, the figure is going to approach close to a million. Um, and these are lives, individual lives. Uh,
1: this this what, is amazing. Uh, what, what are the most uh, common tra- uh, traded and seized animals?
2: Oh, well, sometimes it's just fish, tropical fish. Um, They go in pretty big numbers. Birds, of course, parrots, African gray parrots have been um, seized in large numbers. Um, There are little capuchin monkeys and all sorts of pangolins are going to Asia, live ones, because they like to keep them alive before slaughtering them for their scales. Um... It's, I don't have this data in front of me right now, but I do know that it's It's very broad. There's chameleons and uh, snakes. Some people want to keep boa constrictors. Um, mammals, some people keep privately keep wolves, tigers even. Um, it, it's as, as varied as, as nature is varied.
1: So it's a huge problem. And my guess is most of these species that are confiscated, they're ending up either on the black market because someone has ordered them or ending up in the, the pet trade or private hands?
2: These are concerns for certain. Um, earlier I mentioned that a lot of countries are too poor to um, to respond to the requirements of Sideies. they don't have budget for it. Keep in mind it costs quite a bit of money to create a rescue center, uh, provide nutrition. I had a friend um, in, in Hungary. She was the in Hungary's a uh, European country, um, reasonably well developed, maybe not like Germany or England or France, but still European and had some resources. but she there was a, a consignment sent from Mongolia of 100 wolves a few years ago I uh, came overland, no CITES permits or anything uh, 12 of the animals died along the way just from neglect and, and bad nutrition um, 88 of them arrived alive and hungry and uh, she seized them immediately um, then she said "Oi, what am I going to do with them I have to feed 88 growing wolves every day and I have to house them somehow and have to care for them I don't have the budget for it they, even a country like Yes, of course, there's 88 stomachs to fill uh, daily. Uh, she called me and we we solved the problem with, with generous NGOs. But this is a, a government responsibility to tend these animals, and governments shouldn't always be uh, relying on NGOs to bail them out. Uh, CITES knows this is an ongoing problem. And in fact, the more vigorous enforcement is, The bigger this problem becomes, the more vigorous the enforcement, the more animals they get seized from from criminals trafficking them. And that means more responsibilities on the site's management authorities to take care of them. Uh, So some management authorities say, well, maybe we don't enforce the convention so well, because we're just going to saddle ourselves with a lot of financial responsibilities that we don't have budget for.
1: So you mentioned, we talked earlier about this dry language and, you know, the, the, the title of the committee itself, Disposal of mm-hmm. Specimens. So that's a mindset and um, of, a CITES mindset of looking at species as specimen specimens. So um, how do we go about changing this mindset and the attitudes of the countries and the delegates at CITES itself?
2: Well, the first step is well. I'm chairing this group. I'm proposing that we we change the name of the group, and instead of disposal, we we'll, we'll find something a bit more benevolent. And also, with specimens they're going to be? Animals, plants, and animals. east covers, and we there are many any number of words. Care of these animals, placement of them. Uh, I sort of like nurturing, uh, in which it, there's a play on the. Uh, nature and nurture, put them in the wild, nature, or keep them captive but take good care, nurture um, approach. But uh, whatever is chosen, ultimately, we need to change the language because language influences the way people think, and you see something on the title of a document that's already telling you something about the, the psychology of those who wrote it and their intentions, and we need to, to sort that out. Um, but there's also the, as I mentioned earlier, there's no budget, so we also have to address something much more profound, and that's money. A big pot of money is necessary to to pursue uh, meaningful reforms.
1: Well, this is this is fascinating, and we're going to dig a bit deeper into this as we move forward. But right now, we're going to step away for a short break. So, listeners, stick with us because we have a lot of information to come. We'll be right back.
0: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
1: And welcome back. This is Ellie. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Bill Clark. And we're talking about what happens to seized animals um, at at ports of call through the illegal wildlife trade and trafficking. And we're talking about live animals. And Bill is with CITES, and there's rather dry language. They call it the disposal of specimens. And um, Bill is on the... Uh, is a co-chair of the committee of CITES of what to do with these seized specimens. And we've been talking about how dry this language is because if it had emotional content, then we'd have to think about it. So this kind of tends to uh, allow those countries that do not respond or have the ability to care for these animals to not deal with the problem overall. So it's kind of a wordsmithing Uh, part. So, Bill, tell us a little bit more uh, why this is such a key factor and how it leads to having to raise the money to care for these animals in lesser developed countries.
2: Sure. Um, It's easier to misplace a specimen than it is to misplace a live animal. Um, it's it's a mindset. It's part of an institutional ethos. The language needs to be changed. Uh, and, and so do the levels of responsibilities. Um, with seized animals, what I'm trying to persuade CITES to accept is that an animal, from the instant it is seized by a government officer, that officer is personally responsible for its well-being. He can't take it, throw it in a sack, and toss it in the trunk of a car and deliver it somewhere. He has, to take, he has to be able. And the government should not give credentials to an officer and authorize them to seize wild animals without training them how to care for the animals. They take immediately, immediately it has to be done. They have to have proficiency in, in providing professional good care for these animals. That's part of it. And this will start changing the mindset. You just can't send, hey, you, whoever is not on duty right now, go out there and, and seize these parents or whatever they got in their backyard. No, it has to be done by people who are competent. That requires training, and it requires facilities for bringing animals um, that are seized. Uh,
1: so... Th- with- th- um, w- uh, what we were talking about is you know if there isn't a place in country where the animal has been seized it's already been through trauma from mm-hmm. the illegal the poacher or the the trafficker who seized the live animal it's been through a lot of trauma in transit these are not people mm-hmm. who are looking out for the animal's welfare they're just looking to make the sale so um if the animal can't be cared for on the seizure side
2: mm-hmm. what,
1: what hap- if, if an officer can't take care of it then what happens are, if there is no rescue place are they sold, yeah. are they killed uh, where do they go
2: there are a lot of options there, first I've, I've been in some countries, I was in one country once where they knew some fellow was holding uh, a number of baboons uh, captive illegally uh, primates, they're on CITES appendices. Uh, I said, aren't you going to seize these? He doesn't have a license or anything. He doesn't know how to take care of them either. They're on chains like dogs in a backyard. And they said, no, we're not going to take them because then they become our responsibility. What do we do with them? We wouldn't know what to do with these animals if we did seize them. So they're, as far as I know, they're still there. Uh, so one thing is just not to bother seizing them. That, that way you're not responsible um, other ways, some countries kill animals outright, others sell them, uh, they can seize a bird. Even here in the U.S., it is legally uh, permissible for Fish and Wildlife Service to sell confiscated live animals. They have not done so uh, in recent years, but the law says they're authorized to do so. And this, this of course, can put a, a contraband animal back into illegal trade. Um, the first person interested in acquiring an animal up for sale is the is the trader who, who lost it from the seizure uh, of course um, animals sometimes in some countries can be given to laboratories uh, vivisection um, yes, that's permissible in some places uh, and all sorts of other but this is in contradiction to to the text of CITES itself um, CITES says in in the text of the convention and that's an agreement that was agreed upon by by governments around the world including here in the u.s the u.s senate ratified this treaty it's the law of the land as as well as the law of many other countries it says that when a country seizes an animal they have to either one send it back to where it came from or two put it in a wildlife sanctuary or other such place uh, designated as a sanctuary um and uh, that seems pretty explicit. It doesn't say they can sell it or euthanize it or give it to a laboratory or dump it in a roadside zoo or anything else like that. It needs to, if it's kept, it needs to go to a, um, a sanctuary or, quote, other such place. And to me, other such place means a place that is substantively the same as a sanctuary. It doesn't say any such place. It says this type of place, something like a sanctuary. Um,
1: So this is a really big black hole
2: It is And this is also Under CITES The first option is to return it Where it came from And it's very clear that CITES needs to set up A a network of facilities Especially in habitat countries That can receive Confiscated animals You know you say we've got thousands of Say African grey parrots Thousands of them tens of thousands seized around the world. That means to me there is habitat for tens of thousands somewhere in West Africa from which these parrots had been stolen. Those habitats have been depleted in some countries. There's, they've been extirpated. They're totally gone. There was a, a, a proposal to put African great parrots on Appendix 1 at the last CITES meeting in South Africa, A lot of documentation revealed that there's enormous tracts of empty habitat. The parrots aren't there anymore, or if there are, it's just a handful of them. The population's been badly depleted. Ghana has perhaps as much as 99% depletion rate of African gray parrots. So there's a place to put them. Why don't we, if when they get seized, pack them up and put them back where they belong? There are a number of concerns about that, and some people have been using these concerns to try to resist this sort of reform. And they're saying, oh, we don't know if the animal got sick along the way and it's going to pick up a disease and bring it back to the African habitat and spread it everywhere and cause an epidemic. Well, modern veterinary science has a way of dealing with that, with with quarantines and screenings and that, and we can pick out the animals that are... are are ill or have some disease, but on the other hand, you can look around at some of these um, cage populations, uh, captive population of seized African greys, and they're perfectly healthy. They've been sitting there for years in cages and aviaries. Um, they should be back in their own habitats, and and I'm, I'm trying to push in that direction, and not only African greys, but all sorts of other animals, whether they're just little chameleons or, or larger primates or anything like that, if they're seized in significant numbers, means there must be significant habitat that has been vacated and can be repopulated. Um, the one concern in the habitats is that they have to be, the security has to improve so the poacher doesn't come around and collect them a second time and, and re-export them. But that can be addressed um, if, if there's money to do it. And and that's so much of it depends on money. Um, it, so let's let,
1: let's talk about that. I mean, it does seem to come down to money, and political will, and being able to create a scenario that deals with this black hole of a problem. So, um, you know, it, you you had said you know this questionnaire that was sent out. And many of the respondents said they just don't have the budget to care for them. And you have an idea of how this could be done under uh, the UN and CITES itself mm-hmm. to create a, a response. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, CITES is a convention on international trade and endangered species um, of wild flora and fauna for the full title. Um, it's a UN agency. The employees are all UN employees. It was set up under UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program. So it's a UN facility. Here in the US, there are dozens of of charities that are uh, dedicated to specific uh, UN projects. Uh, there are charitable foundations uh, for UNHCR, the High Commission on Refugees, UNEP, Environment Program. Uh, World Food Program, World Health Organization, UNODC, that's the Office of Drugs and Crime, uh, UNRWA, the UN uh, Relief Works Agency, and many other UN agencies. They're all doing excellent work. They're doing fine work bringing relief and succor to people who are in desperate need because of famine, uh, drought, poverty, epidemics. Remember the Ebola epidemic in uh, West Africa a couple of years ago? A lot of UN uh, support went in there and helped clear up these things and and resolve problems, but there's nothing for for nature and wildlife. So I think there should might be another agency created to um, uh, address these problems. Uh, UNICEF, we're all familiar with the the, the UN uh, fund for um, for children. Uh, UNICEF holds. Uh, um, IRS code 501c3 status, this the uh, UNICEF USA, and they have a very sophisticated program that includes uh, corporate supports and special events and bequests and legacies and direct mailing campaigns and major gifts and corporate support, the whole works. Anyway, in 2016, UNICEF USA uh, uh, raised 500 and (coughs) $64,146,116. Pardon me. That's more than $500 million they raised. And it's going for a wonderful cause to help millions and millions of children um, in, in, in remote areas where there is desperate need. But, golly, I think we can knock on the doors of some places. The UN Foundation itself in New York and say, how do you do it? How do you set something up like this? Will you help us set something up for for wildlife to protect nature and get something going that way? And with this sort of resource, we can start building um, facilities, both in countries that seize animals and more importantly in countries, habitat countries where seized animals should be returned. We just need to identify the 10 or 20 species that are most commonly in, in illegal trade. Say, where do these animals come from? Let's build a halfway house in each of those countries to receive, seize animals, screen them, make sure veterinary concerns are all tended, um, quarantine them if necessary, preferably in the habitat country. And then as conditions warrant, release them back into the vacated habitats that they were stolen from. And and I think if there's a good budget, an ongoing budget from a, a uh, functioning foundation in the U.S., it, it can be possible and we can solve this problem. Um, and that will improve things because when we have such a thing, the law enforcement agencies which today are so hesitant to seize animals because they don't know what to do with them when they do seize them now they'll have something to do oh we can send it here okay well let's go seize those baboons that this jerk has had in his backyard for the last six years yeah we can do that and many other things it would motivate a lot of people um, to do their jobs the law is already on their sides it's just they don't have the bankroll on their sides
1: this is a A big idea so and I think uh, in these days uh, the shift has gone very much toward animal well-being and animal welfare so I think it's certainly possible to get the public involved and as like UNICEF or um, any of the other organizations that provide relief for people uh, that we can provide some sort of avenues uh, throughout the world to provide relief for these traumatized, seized animals until they can be repatriated to the country they came from. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more. So stick with us, and we will be right back.
0: Wildlife ellie founded wild eyes foundation because she loves africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet she does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity it is irreplaceable Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one earth. If we don't care, who will? W I L D I Z E Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world.
1: And welcome back. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Bill Clark. And we've been talking about what can be done about this rather large problem of seized wildlife uh, that is caught in the middle through wildlife trafficking and the illegal wildlife crime and pet trade and exotics and they have no place to go because so many countries are unwilling to face this aspect and with the shift now of so many people being more aware of the sentience of non-human beings and animal well-being and animal welfare, and your idea of creating a governmental NGO with the support of other non-governmental private foundations and charities, that we could set up under UNEP and under CITES a sub-charity with 501c3 uh, designation. So when the money starts coming in how would we how would this charity work and how would we make this happen
2: sure um, well everything needs to start with a seed uh, so we look, look for seed money first that in my thinking we should employ um, a animal welfare professional at the CITES secretariat say on a three year contract that person should be responsible for two things. One, they'd be responsible for just coming to grips with the welfare issues uh, facing CITES. Uh, and two, uh, start looking to create a foundation that would support CITES, uh, especially its welfare uh, responsibilities. Uh, so getting that person in place and giving them three years to get things rolling that would be uh, a first priority in my mind. And I'm hoping that at the standing committee meeting, uh, the CITI standing committee meeting in October to broach this subject and test the waters to see if if they'll support this proposal and then bring it to the the main meeting of the Conference of the Parties, which will be uh, a year from now in Sri Lanka. Uh, That would be the first step. And then once money becomes available, just start avail- looking through the CITES records. Right now, what are the 20 most common uh, species that are seized live? What's, what, what are people, parrots or macaws, who knows uh, which were conners? Um, what are the most common species? And say, okay, where are the habitats they're being taken from? Now let's contact those countries and say, uh, would you be interested to set up a ha- halfway house in your country and receive back uh, animals that have been seized anywhere on earth, receive them back to your country uh, for rehabilitation and release back into nature. Um, that's that's the main thrust of what I'd like to see done. Um, there'll be room for a lot of technical expertise um, and there are many organizations that are very competent to do this habitat surveys and population surveys and that animal health will certainly be a big thing. You don't want to release animals into a habitat that is already pretty densely occupied by um, the same species that will create conflicts. But there are vacated habitats around. They need to be identified. There's a lot of work to do.
1: What is the um, reasonability or possibility of maybe a more short-term goal of setting up sanctuary or rescue facilities at the ports where these animals are seized to do the short-term quarantine while uh, the negotiations are being made or um, habitat of country of origin is being selected or contacted because time is pretty much of the essence for these animals. So mm-hmm. it's been seized at a port or an airport and from that point on, the clock starts running. So it sounds like from that point on, um, at that point, uh, wildlife officials or customs officials are don't want to deal with it at that immediate point. They sell it, they euthanize it, or they um, trade it back or let it go. Who knows? So would the in your approach to CITES, would that be a part of this solution, is to, first off, find a way to build a quarantine for these animals?
2: Um, uh, Yes and no. Um, Yes, of course, in that, as I said earlier, countries need to accept the fact that when they provide credentials to a law enforcement officer, that officer becomes responsible for the well-being of the animal from the instant it is uh, seized from, from smugglers. And this is very, very, very important because these animals um, have gone through, as you noted earlier, a quite a bit of trauma, but more than, than might meet the eye. First, they are poached. They're caught usually by using ways that would otherwise be illegal. Uh, Bird line, leg hole traps, any kind of um, catching device that is um, effective. Uh, They're not looking at the humane aspect of it. And uh, um, snares are very commonly used. They're, They're outlawed almost everywhere, but poachers love to use them. So the animals are traumatized in the poaching process. And then they're delivered, changed from hand to hand to hand, until they eventually get to smugglers. Smugglers—they want these animals, live animals, to be unseen, of course, when they're being smuggled. But animals need to breathe, so that means there has to be ventilation holes or something in whatever's hiding them. Um, but. It's, uh, they need to be kept quiet. The smuggler doesn't want something chirping inside a box or a bag. So they use drugs. They tape their mouths shut. They stuff them in socks. They do all sorts of things that, would, that are normally prohibited under, say, IATA regulations. Um, so there's layer after layer after layer of trauma to these animals. So when they're finally seized, my golly, this, the animal's gone through a terrible ordeal. It needs to be brought promptly. One good um, consideration is that, well, smugglers take animals from habitat countries and bring them to, usually to developed countries. They go to where the money is. They want to sell them at the highest price. And, and you're not going to sell uh, a hyacinth macaw uh, in a developing country for a high price. You need to go to some place that has good cash. And, and there are people willing to pay a lot of money for the bird Um, or any other animal. So these are countries that normally can afford to create their own facilities, and most do. If someone smuggles that macaw into New York, Fish and Wildlife Service are very well equipped to handle um, the animal and place it in the facility where it will get uh, veterinary care, good nutrition, it will be checked, this, that. So this is pretty good. Europeans are also excellent with this. So the recipient countries where the animals are going to, for the most part, have good facilities. There can be improvements for certain, but but generally um, they have good facilities. The, the, the weakness really is, pardon me for a moment, hmm. weaknesses in the poorer countries, which are usually the habitat countries, they just can't afford. They don't have budget to do it. Uh, I knew one country in Africa where civil servants in the wildlife agency they just didn't get paid for nine months uh, because the uh, the government didn't have the money to pay them.
1: Wow! So, and, and pa- so part of this is incentivizing uh, not only the law enforcement personnel but the countries that are receiving these mm-hmm. smuggled animals. And um, did I understand you correctly that when you said that uh, the um, law enforcement officer who finds these animals is immediately responsible for them, do they often take them home and care for them or put them into a suitable rescue place that they know of?
2: Um, that officer should become immediately responsible. That's not the case everywhere right now. I'm trying to push for this reform and saying, as soon as it comes to your, uh, under your jurisdiction, you're responsible. That That's perfectly logical. And I'd like to see that adopted by CITES and applied worldwide. Um, yes, sometimes people uh, take them home. I, I served in law enforcement myself for many, many years. I worked for the Israel Nature and Parks Authority. And first, my training is as a biologist. And then I'd, I'd, I'd been manager of the national uh, reintroduction program for many years and so uh, if an animal was seized and said here can you take care of this one so sure i can take care of it and i had uh, proper facilities even at my home to take care of the animal but i did it with a license i was authorized to do it and that i have no trouble with with an enforcement officer tending an animal If that person is trained, competent, and has the facilities and takes care and visits a veterinarian and does everything that needs to be done and understands the nutrition, this is okay. Uh, Sometimes it's not the case and they just take the animal as a sort of pet and I'll take care of this one. And so the poor bird died last night. No, 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 no. We don't want that. We need competent people to accept them. And it's the same with the facilities. The CITES treaty says that confiscated animals should go to a rescue center or other uh, such facility. Um, it doesn't say uh, any facility, but such facility, something like a rescue center. I don't care what that facility is, as long as it, it can apply the criteria that also apply to rescue centers, that they have the proper training, the proper facilities, uh, and, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, sometime sometimes a zoo can fit in that role if, it, if it's meeting the criteria, no problem. Or maybe some special enthusiast group that takes that is really into uh, studies of uh, a reptile or whatever and they, they have very good facility. Um, for, for short short term before sending it back to its habitat country, yeah, that, that can be as long as the animal gets the care that it needs and deserves. So what, so
1: what we're talking about here is a, a rather large gap between yeah. reality and what's written on paper. Yes. And you're proposing to put forth societies to, uh, to address this gap and yeah. um, create, um, find the money and create a situation where these animals and this gap can be filled and these animals be addressed uh, in accordance yes. with care and nurture and understanding the trauma. First question would be, how um, how how positive do you feel about CITES taking this on?
2: Haha, um, They'll take it on. I don't know if they'll accept it. We're going to fight about it for certain. Some interests um, opposed concept, and they say it's beyond the remit of the convention and all of that. And I don't agree, and some other colleagues don't agree either. Um, we're going to point to uh, especially rely on rely on the text of the treaty as article eight, paragraph five, if I recall, um, it defines what uh, a rescue center is, and it's there's only one one concern, and it says, uh, it's a place that has welfare of living specimens uh, as its primary concern. Okay, that's what we want. Um, and, and this is what we want CITES to do. There's and, there, another- and there certainly yeah.
1: are rescue centers available throughout at least the United States and many other countries that I know You're of. Fine. So part of the problem already has a solution. Yes. So what, what could our listeners do? Can we write letters to CITES? Who would we address our our complaints or our wishes to to support this move?
2: Well, right now, the issue is in a um, political mode. There are working groups discussing it and arguing fine points. I haven't mentioned any particular countries in these groups, but we'll be at it until... Um, early August at which time there will be a, um, a proposal sent to the standing committee and the standing committee will meet in October I'll get you a copy of what proposal comes out and what needs to be sorted right now the the terminology is is not cut into stone yet so um, and we have to go through that process not everyone agrees with all of this but I'm going for the maximum Um it's also, I think, important to to keep in mind, you know, when countries seize animals and they confiscate them, and that animal, by the law of confiscation, becomes the property of the country that confiscates it. You know, if the U.S. confiscates something coming into the port of Baltimore or Philadelphia, that property becomes uh, the property of the United States government. I'm not so certain that this really should apply to wild animals. Wildlife uh, in almost all countries of the earth is considered to be a natural resource or national heritage. In either case, it's entrusted to the government of the habitat country to to, uh, manage to take care of. A poacher is essentially a thief. And if he gives it to a smuggler and takes it out of the country, say uh, we're talking about great parrot. Say great parrot comes to the U.S. and gets seized by uh, customs somewhere um, and gets confiscated. Does that great parrot then become the property of the United States? I'm I'm not certain about the ownership. And we're we're arguing over this too. I think it's still owned by the country where it was hatched, uh, wherever in West Africa, and the U.S. doesn't own it. Uh, and in fact, if the U.S. takes it, or any country, uh, confiscates an animal and sells it, puts it back into trade, which is legal under U.S. law, it's really like selling stolen property, isn't it?
1: Yeah. that's stolen
2: from someone else uh, and, and it shouldn't be permitted. Um, habitat countries retain certain, to my mind, legal And it's international law, and international law is very soft, you know, it's not, international law is not passed by um, a legislature such as U.S. Congress, Um, but it's an agreement among sovereign nations, so it's very difficult to enforce, but nevertheless, selling someone else's property is illegal in almost all countries. If someone steals my car from my driveway and drives it even to Canada and they seize it there, can the Canadian government say, oh, this is Canadian property and sell it off? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I'm still the owner. I have the registration. Um, So I think that this sort of thing applies. And so what we are, in essence, when we see something, we are custodians of someone else's wildlife for As short a period as possible. We have a responsibility to return it where it came from. This is best for the animal. If the animal is healthy and otherwise can be released back into the place where it had been stolen from. It's our responsibility to give a help. We need funding to do this. Okay. Uh, We've got one uh, proposal how to do it. I've suggested. Maybe there are other ways of doing it. And I've been asking around our working group who's got another idea because... Some people have challenged this and say, oh, no, it'll never work. Maybe it won't, but give me an alternative. Um, But I haven't heard one yet.
1: Well, it sounds like this is a a huge um, issue that people need to be aware of, that it is certainly a gap in what's going on when we think of wildlife trafficking and uh, the loss of habitats and the loss of species in the wild, that there are a lot of them sitting in limbo. So um, I hope you keep us posted on this. This is an ongoing uh, issue that um, I I hope our listeners pay attention to so that when we have the opportunity to promote the solution or an alternative that Bill has been telling us about today, that we can fight for those voiceless animals that are being held in limbo. But unfortunately today we're out of time, Bill. But this is, I have learned so much. And uh, thank you so much for your time. And I hope we can keep talking about this as it moves forward.
2: It has been my pleasure. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. And uh, so listeners, think about this. And meanwhile, step out into our wild world. (music)